And uh, now you're getting used to the uh, scripture being read out every week. You've been here the last few weeks, so the beautiful uh, Diana Payne is going to read out our reading for today, Genesis 16. Thank you, Diana. Yep. So Genesis 16, NLT version. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had relations with Hagar and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she is pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. And Abram replied, look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant, pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears, for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fists against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord, who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Beer Lahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. Thank you very much. What a brilliant reading. I wish I could find a young man, but none of them can read in our church, so I have to keep bringing out these young ladies that can read okay. So. so if you're new this morning, or you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been working through a series called The Faith Journey, and we're looking at a different test every week in the faith journey, a test that God brings us to in order to grow our faith and our trust in Him. So the first week we looked at the detachment test, and that was about Abraham letting go. We need to let go before we can move forward. We need to deal with the past before we can move into the future. Uh, beginnings always begin with an ending, so with detachment. The belief test was last week, and Genesis 15:6 is the, really the central scripture to this entire series and really to the entire Christian faith, and that's what we spoke about last week. So the belief test where Abram believed God and it was credited unto him as righteousness, and that's really the Christian message. So when we go beyond Abraham now into the New Testament, it's really about believing in Jesus, and when we believe in Jesus as the Son of God, that is the right way, the righteous way to live. And this morning, we're going to talk about the wall test, as in wall. How do you get past the wall when you hit a wall in your faith journey? We all hit the wall 
at different times in our faith journey. But before we get into the spiritual faith aspect of hitting the wall, I've got a little video for you. I don't know if you've ever seen this before in an athletic event, but people hit the wall when they're running and it's a, it's a little bit sad, but it's an interesting, interesting predicament. This is our two brothers. He's losing his sense of direction. This is worry. Oh, goodness me. This is a horrible sight. Jonathan Brownlee has lost it now and has staggered to a stop at the side of the course. And Alistair's stopped to help him along. And Alistair is going to try and carry his brother home. Dramatic scenes in Cozumel as the Olympic champion carries his younger brother towards the podium. Oh my God, I cannot believe what we are seeing here, Matt. Is this allowed? Is he allowed to help his brother? You know, is that part of the rules? I'm not too sure. We've never seen anything like this before. Unbelievable scenes. Unbelievable scenes in Cozumel. The Brownlee brothers arm in arm, but it's not by way of celebration. Henry Schumann's celebrating. He's going to win this race in Cozumel out of nowhere. But we have to be concerned about the health of Jonathan Brownlee. And they're not even on the final stretch yet. Schumann wins in Cozumel. The brothers are coming home arm in arm to finish in second and third. But Johnny can hardly stand. And Alistair is having to drag him across the line and pushing him home pushing him home for second. Johnny finishes in second. Goodness me, what an incredible conclusion here in Cozumel. I've never seen anything like that anywhere in world sports. It's the epitome of uh, falling over the line right there. Incredible, two of the greatest uh, triathletes the world has ever seen, actually, and their brothers, John, Jonathan and Alistair Brownlee. But uh, that's what happens when you hit the wall when you're running. So the glycogen in your muscles that supplies energy to your muscles to run uh, gets, gets, uh, comes to an end. There's no more glycogen anymore, and uh, the body begins to spasm, begins to tremble, the muscles don't work, and the brain starts to actually switch off your muscles so they don't work properly anymore like you saw with Jonathan Brownlee, and this is, this is a great example of what happens to us in our faith journey, is this, uh, is we're, we're going to spend a bit of time on this diagram today, as we go through our faith journey, the different stages of following Jesus, uh, we eventually come to a time, and you'll come to this time many times during your faith journey, probably once a decade maybe, once every five to ten years, where you'll hit the wall, and that's the red uh, segment there. So often people will meet Jesus or become a Christian or maybe they grow up in church but they make an adult independent decision to follow Jesus and that's stage one of the faith journey. We have this transformation, this awareness of God and we begin to pray and seek God and come to church and it's a great time. That usually results in I want to learn more about God and what we call discipleship really begins. So we become a disciplined follower of Jesus and we follow him closer and closer. It's an amazing time in our life. It's a time of, of growth like this. It's incredible. And then that usually results in, well, now that I'm growing, I love God, I'm growing. I want to do stuff. 
I want to help at church. I want to do something great for God at work. I want to become a leader. I want to, I want to get involved. I want to tell my friends about Jesus. And we get very active in the Christian life until, bang, we hit a wall. I mean, we'll all have hit a wall and we all will hit walls in our faith journey. It's this moment where all of the sudden, the loving God, loving our neighbor, loving church life, all my prayers get answered, all of a sudden hit this place where, am I even really even a Christian anymore? What is the point in praying or going to church? What is the point in helping out around the church? Why do we even gather here? What is this all about? I'm dry. I'm not sure if I believe it anymore. You know, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there pain and suffering in the world? If God is so powerful, I put all my faith in Him, but I've hit this wall where a prayers, do they really get answered? Is there any point really to praying? And we hit this wall in our life. The good news is the Bible is full of heroes of the faith who have hit walls. Moses spent 40 years at the wall in the desert as he led the people of Israel out. David was anointed to be king of Israel. And then he spent 14 years running from his mentor, from a, a father figure named King Saul, who was trying to murder him. 14 years as the anointed king of Israel, he lived in caves, in darkness, running for his life. That's a serious wall. The disciples are following Jesus. They go through stage one, this awareness of Jesus. Stage two, they're following him. They're learning, they're growing. Stage three, they're beginning to do miracles just like Jesus did. And then bang, Jesus dies on a cross. He's dead. He's gone. It's all over. The ministry's gone. Jesus is gone. I thought he was the Messiah, but now he's dead. They hit this incredible wall. Everyone hits walls, whether they're heroes of the faith or whether they're just you and me, local suburban heroes of the faith just down here trying to follow Jesus in our little part of the world. I reckon as I've reflected on this, I think I've hit the wall probably three times in my Christian journey, in my late teen years, in my late 20s, and then in my late 30s. In my, in my late teen years, the wall that I hit in my faith journey was a wall of who am I and do I really want to be a Christian? That was the big question. You might have grown up in church like I did. And so you grow up very Christian. All your friends are Christian. Your school's Christian. Your youth group's Christian. Your t-shirts are Christian. Your deodorant's Christian. Everything's Christian. It's like a super Christian environment you grow up in. But none of that means anything when you've got to make your own decision as a young man or a young woman to follow Jesus. Maybe some of you came to that. I came to that wall. And most of my friends that I grew up with in church walked away from God. They didn't get through the wall. They couldn't keep faith in God during this time of deep questioning and doubt as a teenager. Right at that same time, I, at 19, I, went, I got scouted in a soccer game and got, went over to the UK and spent three months training with a club called Brentford over there in England, and it didn't work out. I didn't become a professional soccer player. My dream was in tatters. I returned to Australia, and I was really, really depressed for about a year. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life if I couldn't play soccer. All I had was Jesus. No soccer, just Jesus. And I was depressed. And I was wondering, oh, I've been a good boy all my life. This was God's chance to bless me for being a good boy all my life, to make me, help me get my dreams, and they all failed. 
What's the point in following God if you don't get what you want? That was the wall that I hit. Anyway, thank goodness, by the grace of God, I got through that wall and I kept following Jesus. And for a while, things were going really well. You know, I met Zoe and we, 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 we were our great friends. And then we got in a relationship and we got married and we're a bit of a power couple. Like we had no kids and we we're free and we we're doing great things for God everywhere. And then all of a sudden we decided to have a baby. Bad move, bad move. <laughs> That's a good move. It's a good move. We had a baby and we were unstoppable until we had a baby. And man, we hit a wall. Not the ba- not, not, that's not Aurora and us hitting Aurora, but she was a difficult baby and we were naive, first-time parents. Sorry if you're a first-time parent, you're very wise, you know exactly what you're doing, sorry. Uh, we were naive, first-time parents, just trying to deal with a baby and uh, it didn't go very well. It was a really difficult time. Zoe didn't sleep for more than three hours a night for 18 months. We just, it was really difficult. In the second year... Oh, it might have actually been the first year we had Aurora. Second year of our marriage, first year of baby, I took over this church. So I stepped up and became the senior minister uh, at the same times. And man, everything was just concentrated in one moment. And I really started to break. I hit a massive wall. I didn't know all of the strength and the skills of a young man that had got me to senior pastor, had got me a wife, had got me a baby had got me into my position in life, all of those skills, all of those strengths, they didn't work anymore. I needed new skills. I needed new insights. I needed a new understanding of God. I needed new tools in my tool bag. Everything that got me there to this great spot in my late 20s, it didn't work anymore. My prayers didn't work. My Christian life didn't work. I stopped praying. I I wasn't sure if I believed anymore. There's this disappointment gap that kind of emerged. And I know many of us have been through that, where, we, where there's this reality of our real life, and then there's this who we'd like to be, who we think God wants us to be, what we thought we would be as a husband or as a father or, or as an employee or as a running our own business, whatever it is. But the, in the middle there is this gap of disappointment between our dream and between reality. And that's often a wall that people hit. Often a wall people hit is divorce. They hit a wall of someone dying in their family. They hit a wall of a huge injustice at work. Maybe they get sacked or their career isn't working out the way that they wanted. And we burn out, mental breakdowns. All of these different things bring us to this wall in our faith journey where we're not really sure if we can trust God. We're not really sure if we can believe Christian people anymore. We're not really sure if this is all it's meant to be, all that God has called us to be. Thank God. I managed to get through, by the grace of God, that wall. And for a few years, things were going great. And I actually said to Zoe at about 34, 35 years old, I literally said to her, we've been having a few good years. Like, things are going okay. I said to her, but I I wasn't dumb and young anymore. I was wise and old now. And I said to her, something's going to go wrong. It has to. It's just the rule of life. Like, we'd been going okay for a few years. We're due. We're due a trial. And man, did we get a trial. (laughs) God brought us to another wall. In his grace, in his mercy, he brought us to another wall, another opportunity to grow our faith, another opportunity to die to ourself and die to selfishness and die to sin, an opportunity to grow again in our late 30s. And to be honest, I think this wall, this last wall, I feel like maybe I'm coming through maybe this year, and it's probably gone for five or six years. 
And it's dealt with a lot of things in my life, a lot of things in my personal life, a lot of things in our church. A lot of us have been through a similar wall together. We've all been through the wall of COVID and lockdowns together. It was like a communal wall that we all faced. And it causes you to question deeply. St. John of the Cross wrote a book 500 years ago called The Dark Night of the Soul. And this is what a wall is. It's the dark night of the soul. It's the, it's the valley of the shadow of death that you come to. It's the dark time. It's the winter season in your faith journey. The dark night of the soul is a wrestle only you can have with God. It's Jacob and God wrestling in the Jabbok. No one else can get you out of it. Doesn't matter how great your wife is, your husband is, or your parents are, your pastor is, it's just you and God. It's raw, it's deep. Everything will be doubted. Every belief system from your childhood, everything you thought was true, every prayer that you pray, everything will be questioned and doubted and looked into and addressed in the dark night of the soul. You'll doubt God, you'll doubt yourself, you'll doubt the church, you'll doubt your friends, you'll doubt your spouse, you'll doubt your job, your career, everything that you've chosen, chosen sorry, in the dark night of the soul. But at the wall, God offers you something so powerful. It's stage four here on our diagram. He offers you this journey inward, a journey inward. The wall test is God's invitation to journey inward into spiritual maturity and a deep loving friendship with Jesus like you have never. You think you've experienced God. You think you know the love of Christ. You think you know what it is to be grown up in your faith. The wall offers you a whole new season, a springtime. But it's an inward journey, not an outward journey. So Abraham's wall, we read it, Diana read it so brilliantly before. Here it is in Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. There's his wall. We've been talking about this the last few weeks. The promise of God was that he would be a great nation and that he would have a, a son that would begin this great nation, this huge promise that he would have descendants like the stars in the sky. It's now been 11 years, so from 75 to 86, 11 years since the promise, since Genesis 12, since God said, I'll make you into a great nation. 11 years, God, been a decade, plus one. What's going on? And this is where we come to Genesis 16 and this story where he fathers Ishmael, the error, the big mistake. Abram's got this wall to deal with. I've got no children. He's starting to doubt. Is the promise really true? Remember last week we spoke about the covenant and, and it wasn't Abram that walked between the two halves of the animals to cut covenant, it was actually God who walked between them, proving his faithfulness that God was the one that would hold this covenant together. But even now, 11 years later, he's wondering, I don't know. That's where we get to Genesis 16 and the mistake today. And beyond this mistake, beyond this error, there's still another 14 years that Abram waits at this wall. It's a 25-year wall, a test of patience, a test of faith, a test Will you trust God's timing, God's process, God's way? Abram hits this wall. There's big decisions you've got to make at the wall. This sermon today 
could potentially transform your life. I know many of you are at walls. Many of us are at walls. Many of you have been at walls. This is going to give you insight to the past. This is going to help you today and help you tomorrow. This is something often not spoke about in Christianity, but such an essential part. But there's big decisions to make at the wall. The first one is patience or do you deal with the problem? There's either patience at the wall and embracing the dark night of the soul. Very difficult. Everything in your head, everything in our culture will tell you avoid pain, avoid patience, run to pleasure, soothe the problem, drink a little bit more, maybe having a little affair on the side, do something to soothe the pain, get into something, throw yourself into work, become a workaholic, become a career man to soothe the pain. And that's trying to deal with the problem of the wall your own way. The second decision is you're either an inward journey and you fix this. Guess who can fix this? Only you. Only you and God can do this. No money, no soothing on the outside, no external thing will be able to fix this. It's only through journeying inward in prayer and relationship with God can this be fixed. Or you look for an outward fix. You look for an external fix. You look for something to soothe the pain. You look for something else out there, somebody else or something else. And there's many things on offer in our world to help distract you so you don't have to go in here because going in here can be difficult. Going in here can be confronting. I know sometimes I sit in prayer this year as I try to go into my heart and I sit there in prayer before God. And as I'm silent, what comes to the fore in the silence is my weakness. My sin again, my anger and frustration that's come out at my kids again, like my junk comes to the surface and it's not very nice at times. But I want to journey inward and I want to change my heart, not try and change everyone else and everything else on the outside. You either go through the wall, through the wall, or you get stuck at the wall. Lots of people get stuck at their walls and then Christianity disappears. Their faith ends. Lots of people get stuck at the wall. Maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. You come to that first wall will be, do you want to follow him or not? A lot of people get stuck there. I don't know if I can believe in this stuff. You get stuck there in unbelief. I don't believe. I don't believe anymore. I don't want to believe. It all comes down to faith. If you want to be a Christian, it all comes down to faith. And believing and trusting God. Abraham screws up at the wall 11 years into this 25-year wall. He tries to solve the problem externally, not in his heart. He tries to, not with patience, not with trusting God in the process. He tries to deal with it externally. It was his wife's idea, actually. She had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children Go and sleep with my servant. Here's, here's a way to deal with the pain, deal with the wall, deal with God being too slow on his promises. Perhaps I can have a child through her. And Abram agreed with Sarah's pr proposal. Now I know you're sitting out there, husbands, thinking, this is an interesting scenario. <laughs> Wife encouraged sexual exploration to solve this problem? Hmm, this is interesting. Is this a trick? Is this a trick or is this from God? Maybe this is right. Surely my wife couldn't be wrong encouraging me to go and sleep with another woman. Maybe this is the way to deal with things. Abram 
takes his hands off. Rather than being a man of responsibility, rather being a man that leads his home. You've got to understand, mums and dads, leaders, business leaders, wherever you lead, wherever you have some influence, the way that you lead through the wall impacts everyone behind you. But rather than step up to the fore as a man of God and be patient at the wall and wait for God's timing, he diffuses the responsibility and hands it over to his wife. And, you know, it's not a bad deal, maybe. He gets to have some, uh, gets another wife, gets another way, another option. Verse 3, so he took the Egyptian and Sarah gave Abram as a wife. And verse 4, so Abram had sexual relations with Hagar and she became pregnant. You see, Abram's energy had run out. Has anyone been at the wall before and you've got no energy? You're fatigued. You're done. You know you should do the right thing. You know you should do the biblical thing. You know better. But I'm just tired. I'm just not sure if I trust anymore. And Abram doesn't see Hagar. He doesn't see a woman. He doesn't see a human. He doesn't see a person. He sees someone to be used to solve his problem. He sees an opportunity to deal with his own issues at the wall and he takes advantage of her and deals with his frustration by trying to have a child through her rather than waiting for God. But Abram's error, Abraham's error becomes Hagar's mistreatment. There's naughty kids in here. <laughs> Abraham's error becomes Hagar's mistreatment. And I know this is going to get a little bit uncomfortable here because we like to think of ourselves as very autonomous and individualistic, but we're not. Your faith journey impacts other people. Your decisions at the wall and how you deal with the hard times, it will impact other people. That's why community is so important because you never want to be stuck with blinkers on trying to deal with God on your own because you never know who you might be injuring in the meantime. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. And then Sarai said to Abram, this is your fault. And he's thinking, oh my goodness, this is a typical argument in the kitchen, right? You said I could sleep with her and we could have a baby with her and now it's my fault? I just followed you. That's what happens when you are irresponsible. It always comes back to hurt you, even if you're letting the wife do whatever or the pastor do whatever or the leader do whatever or the boss do whatever. If you don't take responsibility for your faith journey, it will come back to bite you. I put this woman in your arms and now she's treating with me with contempt. So Abram, again, a second time, a second time he's irresponsible rather than dealing with the problem, rather than dealing with it in a godly way. A second time he says to Sarah, will you... Deal with it as you see fit. She's your servant. You deal with her the way that you want. And Sarai mistreats Hagar. Mistreats her to the point that she has to run away. She can't stay anymore. And you have to understand, this isn't modern times like today where you just jump on Centrelink and move houses and get some new friends. Like If she leaves the camp, if she leaves the, the home, where's she going to eat? Where's she going to get water? How's she going to survive? Leaving your home means death. It's not an easy thing to run away in the ancient Near East. This is 4,000 years ago. Abraham's error at the wall test becomes Sarai's pain. You've got a wife in pain. 
a wife without a child, a wife that's bringing you into her pain, becomes Hagar's abuse. She's caught up in Abraham's mistaken error and the unborn Ishmael's childhood. This kid's not even born yet and he's already got problems all around his life. You see, the first family, if we read on from Abraham into Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons of Israel, the first family actually has lots and lots of problems, makes lots and lots of mistakes. If you read on in the story, eventually the 12 sons or the 11 sons sell their brother Joseph, the 12th son, they sell him into slavery. There's lots of errors along the way. And this is the story of the first family in Genesis. They continually screw up. God is continually faithful, as he will be to you and I. But God extends his covering and his blessing, even to Hagar, the Egyptian, not a Jew, a woman, not a man, a slave, not a free person. This is the incredible faithfulness of God. You will never find anything in ancient literature anything like this, where a God looks at a woman, a Gentile, an Egyptian, and a slave, and shows mercy. He does it on behalf of Abraham to cover his mistake, and he does it on behalf of Hagar, a person, a woman, somebody loved by God. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord finds Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness. I'm just going to jump down to verse 10, and he says to her, I will give you more descendants than you can count. Have we heard this before? It's the same language that God said to Abraham, I'll give you descendants. Now he's saying to Hagar, I'll give you descendants more than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant, will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. Everyone say, God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. See, when we're patient at the wall and we wait on God, yes, we cry out. Yes, we cry out in distress. Yes, we shake our fists at heaven. Yes, we ask, where are you, God, in this circumstance? But I'm telling you, God, hears your prayers. Hears your pain. Hears the hurt, the turmoil, all the questions you've got. He hears you at the wall, just like he heard Hagar. This son of yours will be a wild man and untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. And we see this even to today. So the Arab people track their, their descendant back to Ishmael, cousins of the Jews. There's a lot of hostility in that region of the world. It comes out later in Genesis 17, 20, where God says to Abraham this time, as for Ishmael, I will bless him also, just as you have asked, I will make him extremely fruitful and multiply his descendants. He will become the father of 12 princes and I'll make him a great nation. You hear the same echoes, don't you, of the 12 sons, the 12, 12 tribes and the Jewish nation being a great nation. The same with Ishmael. You'll be a father of nations. You'll be a father of 12 princes and I'll make you a great nation. God's faithfulness endures. Despite Abraham's unbelief and error, despite Hagar's position as a non-chosen person of God in this part of the story, a non-person uh, chosen person of God, a slave, a woman, no rights, no rights, no power, no home. God covers everybody's weakness, everybody's unbelief, everybody's mistakes with his incredible faithfulness. 
Thereafter, verse 13, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken her. She said, you are the God that sees me. She also said, I've truly seen the one who sees me. So that well was named Beer Lahoi Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. You see, you see El, El is the ancient Hittite name for God that was used all throughout the ancient Near East. So 4,000 years ago, El referred to God. But who is this God? Who is this God that everyone talks about? The Hittites, the Egyptians, the Jewish people in the ancient Near East, they all had El, E-L. But then the Bible, it starts to unfold the name of God. El becomes El Shaddai. El becomes El, any others? El-Hohim. El becomes El Roy because the character of God, he begins to, the one true God begins to reveal himself even early days, way before Jesus, which is the ultimate manifestation of God, God is revealing himself. And here Hagar begins to realize you're not just El, you're not just God, our God, the God. You're El Roy. You're the God who sees. You see me. You're not just El, this ambiguous God that's up there somewhere, you're Al Roy, you see me, the individual, you see me in pain, you see me at the wall, you see me as the victim, you see me as the victim in the story. God is the God who hears, God is the God who sees. Ishmael is named Ishmael because it means God hears. Hagar names God or understands God as Al Roy, the God who sees. He's the hearing and seeing God he knows what you're going through. He knows what's happening at the wall. He can see beyond the wall. He knows when you'll go through the wall. Your job is to have faith along the journey. So how do you go through the wall the right way? How do you move through this time, the dark night of the soul, this dry valley of the shadow of the death, the, the winter season? You know, walls are inevitable like seasons. Winter's going to come, you're going to have a wall, but spring's going to come as well. There's always resurrection in the Christian journey on the other side of death. So how do you go through the wall the right way? The first thing, I want to give you three things as we finish off, and then we're going to finish with some worship today and really focus on God. The first thing is to reframe the wall as a gift. This can be really challenging. Because when things are bad or when things are difficult, it's hard to see them as good. Is that true? When things aren't going to plan or you've got that disappointment gap of the reality of my life, but the dreams that I had, the dreams for my marriage, the dreams for my career, it's really difficult to see hard times as a gift. So in the dark night of the soul, St. John of the Cross talks about three stages of the dark night. And the first stage is beginning, the second stage is for progressives as we move along, and the third stage is perfection. So what the dark night of the soul does in you and changes in you and transforms in you. But St. John of the Cross, 500 years ago, said, the beginning, the start, is to see the wall as a gift, to see the dark night as a blessing from God. You know that we grow through agitation, we grow through niggles. We grow through pain. You all know that if you go to the gym because you want to get fit, it's going to require some pain. No pain, no gain. 
You all know that if you want to do well at university or you want to do well at an exam, it requires some pain, the pain of study, the, pra- the patience, the process to sit down and work at our studies. You want to be a soldier? You've got to go through boot camp, and that's not an easy time. We're comfortable with things in life requiring effort, requiring pain, requiring suffering, requiring patience, requiring something from us that draws greatness out of us. Why do we struggle when there's pain in our faith journey? Why do we find it difficult when things don't work to plan? Why do we find it hard when the way that we thought God should act or talk is not actually the way that God is going to act and talk? And then we get all frustrated and offended about it as if we know God or as if we could tell God and maybe guide Him and mentor Him in how He should act and speak and operate. So much of the pain and suffering of the Christian life is the fact that you don't know but he knows. The fact that you don't see, but he sees all and he sees you. The fact that you don't hear right. You hear through your perspectives. You hear through your your projections. You hear through all your own desires, but God hears clearly. God knows what's best. God sees without any problems. I read this out to you last week from Hebrews 5 verse 7, and God heard Jesus' prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. If you want to move through the wall, if you want to go to the inward journey, can we just put the last slide up just with the picture, our diagram? If you want to go through the wall to stage four in the journey inward, where you find a deeper revelation with God, a deep and meaningful prayer life that slows your life down, brings spiritual maturity, that makes you the father you want to be, the mother you want to be, the person you want to be. All the great things you want are in here if God can deal with your heart. You've got to see the wall as a gift. Don't see it as a wall. See it as a bridge that's going to take you from immaturity to maturity, take you from not knowing to knowing, take you from being an average dad to being a phenomenal dad. Take you from being an okay Christian kind of, you know, going along with things to being a Christian that knows God and can actually help others be the kind of Christian that knows God. The second thing, the first one is see it as a gift. The second thing is pursue the inward journey. The external, I see it all the time as a pastor. It's fascinating. People hit the wall and they try to fix it externally. And the first thing that goes is serving at church. First thing that goes is coming to church. First thing that goes is praying. All the external things that you can control, when we get frustrated with God at the wall, we switch them all off. Prayer doesn't work anyway. I don't even know why I come to church. And like, maybe I've grown out of it. I'm not sure. And we switch off all the external things. Everything we can control, we do. And then things we've never done, but we can control, we go to. We all of a sudden get involved in things and we look for answers and we watch things we never used to watch and we hang around people we never used to hang around and we dream about things or try business things we never would have done before because we're trying to find an external fix to our problem while God is just saying, hey, it's so simple. (laughs) God is trying to get through to you. It's so easy. It's so simple. It's so clear. Just go in. Go in, not out. In 2019, when I was really hitting this final wall that I feel like I've been in and maybe coming through, again, the grace of God, the, the, the book, The Spiritual Disciplines, came across my desk again. And I hadn't read it for 20 years. And I don't even know why I picked it up. I get it, completely get it now, but I picked it up again. 
because I was looking for answers at the wall. I was so lost for answers. And I picked up Richard Foster's Spiritual Disciplines, Celebration of Disciplines, where it talks about prayer, talks about fasting, talks about Sabbathing, talks about all these different things. And I was like, oh, duh. Like, where else do you go inward but go back to the way that Jesus lived, the way that Jesus prayed, the simple life, the godly life, the centered life, the way that the desert fathers lived, the way that the monks lived for a thousand years, the way that people have lived as men and women of God for 2,000 years, finding God not in the things of this world, but finding God in the place of prayer. What happens when you pass through the wall and begin to pray again, because you probably stop praying, (laughs) is that you're a novice again. And it's this beautiful thing. You pass through the wall and everything's new again. Every scripture you read is like you've never read it before. As you start to pray again, it's like you've never prayed before. You don't know anything about prayer. You sit in church and you listen to sermons and you go to life group and you talk about faith and it's like it's all brand new again. It all comes again like a springtime. It's kind of the same tree, but it blossoms again. It just is new. It's old, but it's new. It's familiar, but it's starting again. And this is the beautiful thing about going through the wall is you embrace being a novice again. You embrace the simplicity of the Christian life again. And you look back and you realize, man, before the wall, things got so complex. Because you remember the days when you, you first got, became a Christian or when you were in your 20s just serving around the church and it was all so straightforward. <laughs> but it all got so complex along the way. So much of me and power and roles and God and who I am and what you should do. And it all got... Ugh. The wall filters out the junk. The wall cleans you up again and purifies your heart because the pure in heart can see God. The wall is an opportunity for purity. And finally, number three, trust God's process until you're through the other side. You can't jump over it. You can't run around it. You can't kick through it. All you can do is trust God's process and timing and eventually you'll just pass through the wall and what needs to be done will be done. Romans 4.19, And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at a hundred years of age he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Can we all just stand up this morning? Just look at this from verse 20 with me as, you are, as you're standing there, because this is so powerful, so powerful. We're in the New Testament now, okay? If you're new to the Bible, Romans in the New Testament. Abraham's the father of all those who believe, but he's way, way back. Romans is a lot closer to us. And still Abraham is the father of faith. He's the model that Paul, as he, wrote to, he writes to all the Christians that live in Rome. That's what the letter of Romans is. In verse 20, he says this, so powerful, it's being said to us today. You just listen to God. You can close your eyes if you want. Take it as God speaking to you this morning. And Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. 
after 25 years of learning to trust, of letting go, of being patient, Abraham eventually went through the wall and his son, Isaac, was born when he was 100 years old. Now, Paul isn't saying much about his mistake here, is he? Paul isn't highlighting the fact that he had some doubts because this is how God treats us. You just take this in this morning as I'm sharing. This might be like a prophecy over your life, a prayer over your life as I'm sharing this morning. You just take it straight from God. You have made mistakes. You have doubted. We all have. You've stopped praying. You've got it all complicated. God didn't get it all complicated. You got it all complicated. But just like Paul writes to the church in Rome here, He's not pointing out all the doubts. He's not pointing out all the problems. He's not saying, yeah, you made it, but you're really stuffed up along the way. There's no, God's not looking at you saying, yeah, I told you so. Like, yeah, you got there, but like you did it pretty crap. He's not. Paul is highlighting here, and this is the heart of God. Paul is highlighting the end product, the end of the dark night of the soul. What happens after the winter when spring comes? Paul's highlighting the truth of God, and that's that. Abraham never wavered in the end. Abraham grew stronger in the end. Abraham brought glory to God in the end. Abraham was fully convinced eventually in the end. Abraham was convinced of God's promises. Yes, he got there in the end. Lord, we just stand before you today, Father God. Faith is a journey that in the end we will arrive and if we love you and believe in you then we'll be considered righteous not just in this life but in the next life you have given us the free gift of Jesus Christ and all you ask for is to believe all you ask is for us to trust you 